Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Jeremy from Red Means Recording. In case you're unfamiliar, Red Means Recording is a wildly successful YouTube channel, which at the time of this recording has nearly 400,000 subscribers. Jeremy is a video creator and musician who found a great niche making highly produced videos that center around gear, music production, synthesis, and education. And odds are, if you're a musician who goes on YouTube at all, you've seen one of his many wildly popular videos on the OP1 synth pop up on your feed as well. In this interview, we talk about how getting fired from his day job video editing led him to doing YouTube full-time, how he survived as a full-time musician for so long, the importance of quitting and pivoting our focus in our careers, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Jeremy from Red Means Recording. I'm very curious about this. I want you to tell me where your educational bent comes from, because not every musician kind of goes down that route. And you have a lot of videos on your YouTube channel. I just checked. I think it was 530. And a bunch of them are educational. Yeah, especially more so uh, now. And you're going to see more and more of that. When I started making videos on YouTube, it was a very personal sort of like, you know, just doing art sort of stuff, music videos, like fun stuff, exploring motion graphics. And uh, the music side of YouTube, what people know as Red Beans Recording, really took off out of nowhere with the OP1 videos. And alongside the success of people liking the music and the video editing itself, there was just so many questions about what I was doing, how I was doing it. And I was like, wow, it would be neat for me to be able to answer some of these. So actually, the way it started was like during the OP1 videos, I would actually try to call out the techniques I was using and stuff like that. So even in those, I would be explaining like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, messing with this LFO or messing with this cutoff frequency, or, you know, here's the chords that I'm using or something like that. It just seemed like it was kind of cool information to share, but it was always in response to people asking questions in, in the context of the comments. So the more that I did stuff, the more I sort of like fell into that. And the more that I had to say, as I was able to better express the answers to the questions that people were asking. I was really kind of unsure about it, especially around music theory, stuff like that. But I guess the confidence to educate became more and more as I realized that the way that I was explaining things was actually reaching people. So all of that said, I think that YouTube is a really interesting space to entertain. And a lot of people who I follow and watch, that is what they do. But I also think it's an amazing space to educate. And when we make a channel to uh, engage with people with our craft, we can choose to have it be extremely one-sided, meaning we can just produce our craft and people will consume it and that's it. And that's viable. There are some people that I follow that I really love that do that, but that's not what I'm doing. I decided that I was going to move more into the two-way street where I was going to try to like teach people what I was doing and what I knew. And it's been more fulfilling than just making music. I really, really like it. 
Yeah. And what's interesting is that you have the edutainment kind of mix, right? The, the edutainment yeah. thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and you have you have your own style, right? You have your own like quirky sense of humor that I do so love and lots of people love. And it's very you. Did that come about instantly? Was that this kind of thing where you're just like, I'm just going to be weird? Did you emulate someone? Did you have someone tell you like, what was that process? Well, so if you look at the trajectory of the channel, you know, it started with just my hands on a piece of gear and uh, this funny text. So I was very insulated from putting myself on screen, so to speak, but I was putting myself into the videos. And because of that sort of anonymity that the uh, that style afforded, I was able to be strange and express myself in very different ways than I would if I was talking to the camera. It's sort of like you're able to like just do train of thought like weirdness especially after you've done them for a while you're just like what am i hell am i going to type here like i'm just going to go off on a fucking tangent i don't <laughs> care like and just be weird as shit and it's fun it's just like it's sort of a release to just be odd when i started showing my face i was really coy about it and really weird and that's just sort of who i was like i wasn't really comfortable with being on screen and that's been tempered quite a bit over the years of it probably a lot less years than i think it has been like maybe like 2 years 3 years and now i don't care in fact, like I, I do kind of miss being weirder on camera. Like I try to be weird as possible because I think that's one of those things that one is fun. And two, I think it's important for people to be weird and see other be people being weird. I think it's something that like helps people feel comfortable with being weird. So I, I try to be as weird as possible to help other weirdos feel comfortable when they're watching my content. There's something really important you said there where it like took time, right? You were you're coy at first and it wasn't this instant thing. Oh, Your no. Your face didn't show up and you're like, oh, this is great. It's super wild to me because I, I went down this rabbit hole of sort of this new group of comment channels or uh, video essayist channels, sort of like bread tube tangential. And they're all young kids and they grew up with YouTube as it was much more fully formed and people had already put in all this work to define what certain niches of YouTube is about. And it's wild to see how they interact with the platform and how they talk about their content. They're like very savvy about like the algorithm and how they should act and what they should do and you know how far they should push it within the context of what they're trying to do. And I actually also see that with music tech channels as well, especially like newer ones. It's like, I don't really come outside my bubble that often, but like there's a lot more people doing this now than there were just even a few years ago. You know, I feel like like there's certain kinds of groundwork that was set, not just from the music tech YouTube, but also just YouTube in general. There's all these sort of like unspoken sort of like standards and ways to do things that come up, which actually goes back to like, you know, your personality is all you have. I mean, yeah, like the content of what you're doing and the quality of that is very important, but ultimately I've heard time and time again that the thing that really brings people back to uh, experiencing your content is that they identify with you as a person. And I think that's interesting. Like you end up having to put yourself into your videos, whether you maybe want to or not, because like that's really what people identify with. Yeah, I mean, YouTube's weird that way. It's super, super weird that way. And you had an interesting kind of thing happen, because if you look in the description of I think it was your most popular OP1 video, you kind of said like, I'm done. Yep, I'm good. I didn't want to do this anymore. And then it blew up, of course. So like, what made you not give up? Like, what made you not stop? Was it just the numbers or was there something else to it? So the pivotal OP1 video was I Need You, which is the most popular video on my channel. It's got, I think, like 4 million views. Nothing has come close to that ever. And that was the point at which I had been doing it 
for just long enough where it was starting to become a treadmill. And I was like, all right, what's next? And, you know, not a lot of stuff would stick. I would feel like this was the only thing I could do, but I had to try something else. I had to like, like branch out from there. And I mean, luckily there were other things to, to mess around with and, and play with. That's the great thing about music tech is that like, there's just so much you can get. Uh, we're in a golden age for that stuff, I guess is the best way to say it. And then I think last year was actually kind of the hardest year for just the entire like conceptual framework of what the hell this channel is supposed to be. Like, what does it mean to do it? What's the point of all this? It's so weird. They say that like nothing changes on New Year's, but I swear to God, like come January 1st, after like beating my head against the wall all December about like what I never wanted to do again, I came out January 1st. I was like, you know what? Fuck this. Like whatever like works, whatever I like, I feel excited about doing, I'm just going to do it. People seem to like it. So I'm just going to do it. Like, it's fine. It wasn't numbers. It was more so just like, this is a extremely potent I guess for lack of a better phrase, like dopamine rush. I mean, like you put something out, you immediately get like feedback on it. If you have an audience that likes what you're doing, you get positive feedback. And that's a really weird thing. Like we don't get that as human beings. A lot of people will be out there creating and maybe like their friends and family will, you know, begrudgingly listen to their new song or something like that or something they've put out. And that's that to get, the kind of like feedback loop that YouTube can provide is something that's very difficult to to move past. You want to continue to engage as long as you can because it's just a a potent positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just mentioned like you know this works. Fuck it, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, and we were talking about like before this, like the idea of like whatever works works. Like whatever you find works for you works for you. Can you like talk to that, especially when it comes to making a career in music, which is this esoteric thing that no one really knows how to do? Yeah. So I think to frame this answer a little bit better, I'll, I'll try to explain like what it looks like for me to be doing this professionally. So like I make YouTube videos, like I put out one a week. Uh, sometimes I'll shoot like a whole bunch in a week and then I'll have a bunch backed up. I teach lessons like five days a week online. Uh, that's sort of my main job. I have a Patreon and I have a few small like bits of ancillary income that come from like music streaming, affiliate links to music retailers and selling like uh, synthesizer preset packs and stuff like that I made. I think that covers it. So it's all these different paths of income. Some of them are much smaller than others. And YouTube is way down on that list. <laughs> like my ad, <laughs> ad rev from YouTube is not something that I could imagine um, living off of unless I was like up there doing like 2 million views of a video or something like that. So there's like no wrong way to make all of this work for you. Like, like you do really have to diversify. You can't put all of your eggs in one basket. If you want to escape the inertia of this sort of like, you know, quote unquote system, the nine to five, like working for somebody else, you know, even if you separate that from YouTube, becoming like an independent contractor uh, for yourself, a uh, consultant or somebody who does their craft on a per hire basis, you are outside the system as it exists. So therefore you have to figure out the right way to like collect all of these revenue streams together and make them work for you. My point being here is like, I still feel a lot of anxiety about being in the position I am doing what I'm doing. Like, because every day I'm like, this is going to fall apart. I'm just waiting for the shoe to drop. Like I'm going to see people start unsubscribing from my Patreon. People are going to stop taking lessons from me. I'm going to see this like whole thing just fall apart. And then I'm going to have to go find a quote unquote real job again. That mindset is is really toxic. 
like the quote unquote real job thing. I am doing a real job, you know, like this is a job. <laughs> it's just, it's so outside the, the norms of what I have ever done uh, for my whole life that it's hard for me to, to see it that way. So it's been a bit of a struggle to accept that all of these sort of like little pieces can contribute to a livelihood um, that is authentic. It's just, you sort of have to like work hard to get there and, and let go a lot of the preconceived notions of what it means to quote unquote work as a creative. Yeah. And when we are kind of like growing up, we are thinking of things literally in terms of like real job and not real job, right? Like even when we're little, we're like if you're a musician, you say like, oh, I want to be a musician. They're like, ah, do something real. It's just this constant kind of cultural thing that I've experienced and you've probably experienced of it's not really valued necessarily to do whatever it is we're doing. So can you talk about how you wrestle with that, how you help people through that? Maybe students come to you with that kind of talking to you, asking for advice on how to be valued. Well, I, I don't do biz dev advice. None of the people that I really talk to are asking me how to monetize their hobby. In fact, one of the most common statements people come to me with is, I'm not doing this to, you know, become famous or blah, blah, blah. Like it's, this is a hobby for a lot of people. Um, and 99% of the people that I do lessons with, they're just people that like really love all of this stuff and they want to get better at it. I mean, that's the same as I was too. Like when I started out, there is an aspect of this value problem that you are explaining though, that is intrinsic to just enjoying the creative process itself. We have been led to believe through this really insidious process, I don't exactly know how it works, that our hobbies and interests, the things that we do to unwind and have fun, intrinsically don't have value. So like playing video games to just unwind and have fun, there's no value in that. Like that's just a trash activity. Reading a book or something, you could be doing something more productive with that time. Or like sitting around, like making music, having fun, like playing around with a piece of music tech or playing the guitar or something. It's like, these things are not valued in, in the system that we are part of. They're considered sort of just like things you do in between work, which has value. But we're so alienated from our work itself and the, the products that we work for, or quote unquote, produce that it turns out that like nothing really has quote unquote value. It's like, yeah, we're offered money to work for somebody <laughs> to to do something, but we are pretty divorced from that itself. So on on the flip side of like me feeling very isolated and, and a little anxiety ridden about what I'm doing, my labor is directly responsible for the outcome that leads to my, I guess, enrichment, which is a, I think, a very powerful place to be if you can get there. Yeah, it's the sort of place that I kind of want to show people exists because there is, you know, a lot of people will say like, oh, no, I got to get the nine to five. And even though deep down they hate it, they'll still kind of go for it. So are there times where the lack of security does actually happen? It's not just a worry, but like the income comes down. Like, how do you deal with those actual real moments when it comes up? So I've been full time doing whatever the hell this is for two years now, I guess. And I would say my Patreon is where most of my money comes from. I also have a bunch of lesson tiers tied up in my Patreon. So it's like, it's not just people are contributing to me. It's actually, they're getting something back in that respect. So I'm looking at that number every day. Like, I mean, I'm logging into Patreon to respond to stuff and, and checking that number. There was a period where it dropped under a certain amount. I, I kind of freaked out. I'm like, oh shit, is this like a downward trend? Is this like, this hasn't happened before. And I made some adjustments. Like I just worked harder. Like I, I made 
uh, like a survey to ask people how they were enjoying lessons. I made some changes after that. And I made a video for YouTube that was basically explaining like, oh yeah, you know, I'm still doing this, you know, a year later, year and a half later, uh, here's some stuff I learned from it. And that helped things get back up again. So unlike being an independent contractor or consultant, where unless somebody hires you, you are without work, you know, like, like it's either like feast or famine in that respect. You either have a contract or you don't have a contract. My situation is a little different and knock on wood, I feel like I'm jinxing everything. Um, I do feel a little more in control of being able to make positive changes in that respect and keep afloat. In the period of time where I was working more seasonal work, I was like a stagehand for a while. I would basically like work all summer on the road and then I would find temp work uh, in a different field when I was back in the city, um, not on the road. And I just knew that there was going to be a balance of income between uh, the two and, and deal with it that way. Yeah. So there's an interesting thing that you hit on. You mentioned this earlier, but there's so many streams, right? There's a common belief of, oh, he just does YouTube all day or like, oh, it's just music all day, all the time, mm -hmm. which isn't remotely true for basically any modern musician or any artist or anything like that. They rarely just do the one thing. Oh. No. I mean, and also, like, if you want to look at, like, someone like, you know, Logan Paul or any of the really big YouTubers, they are diversified as hell. Like, they are not just doing YouTube. It's like YouTube is the way that they reach out and engage with their audience uh, in the most potent sort of parasocial way. But they are not depending on just YouTube for their money at all. They've got deals all over the place. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think when people are starting out in their career, they're kind of more in the beginner side, they might see someone like you and say something like, Oh, man, I wish I had all the skills that Jeremy had video editing, music, all the stuff that you're able to do, you have a Patreon, okay, time to learn them all at once. Like, what would you tell someone when they're first starting out who has that belief or mindset? Well, I'm not going to discourage someone to learn however they want. Everybody learns differently. And if you want to throw yourself at something like that, go for it. I however, I'm 42 years old. So I've been practicing all of these skills in one way or another for a very long time. The situation I find myself in now is a distillation of a lot of either lucky things, accidents, or mistakes. And anyone that wants to move super fast from standing still to, you know, 100 miles per hour all set up, I think it's just important for them to understand that that's generally not how stuff works. Like generally, you need to like practice and um, hone your skills before you're going to go from sitting still to uh, driving that race car, so to speak. I, I love enthusiasm in people. Um, I love seeing people excited and passionate about learning. But I also think it's really, really important for people to set modest goals and uh, expectations, have them tempered so that they don't feel as if they're failing. When people set more modest goals, they're able to get a sense of achievement more as they as they progress and they'll have a better foundation to move forward to the next goal as opposed to trying to take on a whole bunch of stuff at once. And I also feel like it's always better if you're trying to learn stuff to learn by practicing a certain thing. Basically, like you're like, I want to do A, B or C and you do your best to get to A and uh, realize along the way maybe what you didn't know you didn't even know to do a and then by the time you get there maybe you realize you're not quite ready to move on to b yet uh you got to practice that bit around a first there's a lot of stuff that happens on your way to learning a subject or uh becoming proficient in something that you may not have realized you're gonna have to actually like learn on the way
I see this with music and people quite a bit. They buy a bunch of gear and they're like, I played tuba for a year in middle school. Now I got $5,000 worth of gear. I want to make music now. I'm like, oh God, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's this amazing thing, though, like there's this invisible kind of learning that every musician goes through that not many people see on the outside. Like you started off playing the flute in music performance school, then went into music engineering and then did video editing and now do YouTube. But it's like a mix of everything that you've done up to this point. Does it ever feel when you're kind of jumping from thing to thing that it feels like you're starting over? I'm assuming A builds on B builds on C, but in ways that you could have never predicted, right? For me, yeah, that's sort of how it happened. But the biggest thing that I can think of is that I always was just kind of like chasing something that was interesting to me. Well, I mean, I guess playing flute wasn't super interesting to me. It was one of those things you do when you're a kid because playing an instrument when you're a kid. But the moment that I started learning about like music technology and video stuff, and then computer graphics down the line, it was just like, this is so fucking cool. Like, I got to figure out how this works. So my goals were always sort of like passion based. Like, I was just like, I got to understand how this works because I love it so much. Maybe that's the take home here is that like, if, if you love something, then that will sort of guide you towards what you're trying to get out of it from a learning experience. That makes perfect sense. I remember hearing an entrepreneur just the other day say, you never want to compete with someone who cares. Oh, shit. That's dystopian as hell. But yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's true. Like you will go further if you care about it, because there will be things that pop up in your life. Maybe motion graphics popped up. And you're like, that's super cool. Let me dive in. Oh, how do I do this? Oh, that didn't work. Let me try this. Yeah, it's just how things work. And that's how we learn over the span of a lifetime, as opposed to like, just a week-long flash where we kind of get mildly interested, which I've done before many, many times. Oh, sure. I think week-long flashes where you get interested in something, it's really fun if you have like a good foundation. For instance, like if you're good at graphic design or good at graphic art and like you see a style of something that's kind of new or like maybe you haven't seen it before, you just get super enamored with it and you're like, wow, like how the hell does that work? And then like you, you try it. There's all kinds of foundational stuff at, at play for you to even be able to like pick apart what's happening in that style in order to reproduce it. And that's like the foundation that you've laid to get to that point so that you can have that flight of fancy. And I think that's cool as hell. Like the more that you sort of like build up your skills, your, your foundational skills, the more that you can just sort of like take these little artistic risks uh, with, with things that you maybe are, uh, not familiar with compared to what you do know. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of like taking those risks, a lot of artists feel stressed kind of no matter where they are in their career of like, okay, I'm going to try this new thing. What if it doesn't work? Oh, God. But I remember, I, I think every artist I've ever met who has like is now making a full time living, regardless of how much the money is, always says that I would tell my younger self, just don't stress. It'll work itself out. But I'm wondering if there ever, ever been a time in your career where stressing actually did help or maybe the opposite where relaxing just fixed everything or like not stressing out so much fixed everything. Yeah. So I have an anxiety disorder. Like I take uh, medication for it. And this was something that I realized super late in my life, like just in the last five years, learning about that wasn't part of my life for some reason. And up until that point, man, if you could take stress and you could turn it into like electrical power, I could probably have like kept Seattle going during the blackout. <laughs> like it was unhealthy levels of stress and it, it was just bad. Like it messed me up physically. It 
made me extremely hard to be around when I would get stressed because I had no coping mechanisms for it. So there was never a time, I think, when me getting that level of stress, mostly through you know my unchecked anxiety, was a good thing for me. It always took away from the situation. However, alongside that, and it's always weird, this stuff is kind of intertwined, the obsessive nature of it's like anxiety and obsessiveness can be sort of a sidecar to each other in the great motorcycle of your brain. And I think to to an extent, the obsessiveness part of me kind of was an asset getting through some of these things where I would just like, that was all I wanted to do. Like that was the only thing that I wanted to do. I was always like laser focused on learning those things or, or practicing those things, um, usually to the detriment of everything around me. But I mean, I'm I'm here now and I'm doing this. So like part of it worked out. I really hate the idea that obsessiveness and anxiety and stress are inherent to the creative. I think that's a dangerous thing to put out there. And it's a very common myth. But if you can transmute your stress into something more productive, then maybe it's not always terrible. When you think of what stress is, do you think of it as a uh, a separation from anxiety as a as a feeling? Hmm. I guess it depends on the situation. Usually, I'd say yes. From time to time, it can be it can be different. Like for example, maybe something has happened and you're just stressed about, or maybe you're just tired, or maybe you've worked out too hard. You know, there are kind of elements of stress that can be separated from anxiety, at least in my brain. I think there's a there's a pretty big link between them, and I think that. Anxiety in in human beings is a bit of a vestige thing. It doesn't really do anything good for us anymore (laughs) because it's generally concerned about something that you have no control over or hasn't happened. You're coming up with things that haven't occurred and making the worst of them. It can be a lot more insidious than that, obviously, and a lot more complicated. But yeah, I'll just reiterate. I don't really think that that stress itself is healthy. Some people perform better, like if they procrastinate, like some people, people are achievers when they have less time to do something, they kind of like flip into a high gear and put out good work. I don't really know what that is, like <laughs> because like I, I would say that, yes, maybe they are stressed, but maybe it's also that they just all of a sudden have a reason to give a shit where they didn't before. It's it's a, it's a weird thing. Have you ever like experienced that? Like where you're just like all the time, every week. <laughs> it's like, oh, now okay. to do it. I kind of figured you would probably know what I was talking about, considering Very your work. Common. I think it's common for literally every creative who, like, I, I actually was talking to like a well-known game composer not too long ago. He's like, I start the day before it's due, otherwise I can't do anything. Oh wow, yeah, okay, interesting. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's common, and when it comes to kind of finding that kind of stronger foundation where you're not necessarily as stressed or as anxious. And, you know, it's hard to get rid of completely. It's very, very difficult. But have you ever had, you know, mentors or teachers or just people you interacted with who had a big impact on that, who helped? I think, well, my partner, Brian, I mean, he, (laughs) I've been through a lot of relationships and very few of them were mirrors to my stress in a way that was productive. So having somebody that could actually like say like, look, man, like this is what I see going on. You might want to like work on that a bit. Very, very pointedly throwing it back in your face in a very like specific way. And, and you know, having it be somebody that you trust and that you actually care about as opposed to like a coworker or something like that telling you that you're just kind of like 
I don't know if I really believe you, but somebody that really knows you, you know, saying that that was really, really helpful to me. And I have had some friends who have been industry professionals in like the video game industry or in the music industry who have, you know, we've swapped stories about what they've been through and how they dealt with it. And, and I, I carry those with me. Like I, I, you know, think about them quite often when I get into a situation that feels, you know, in any way analogous to that. That's great. That's like the sort of thing that I think people need to hear is that it's easy to think, all right, I'm going to hole up and I'm not going to need any person in my life forever. Like I've had that thought a thousand mm. times of like, let me just hole up and never interact with people. And that's how I'll make it. It's really hard to do that. <laughs> At a certain point, you get so in your own head and you just kind of spiral. It's very, very difficult. And speaking of kind of getting in your own head, I'm wondering, how do you know when something is, I'm putting it in hugest air quotes in the world, done and ready to publish and ready to put put out there because you can work on something forever like how do you have that metric of like i gotta put this out so it's a bit of an amorphous question because in order to answer it you have to talk about what it is that's being put out is it a youtube video is it a video that's like a review of a piece of gear those are really cut and dry i just know what i want when i go in to film it and i know how to shoot it and i edit it and it's fine it's done is it an artistic video? Oh, that's when we get a little complicated. I have become a very uh, firm believer in measure twice, cut once. And sometimes it's measure 50 times, cut once. And th this is the, the part of the technical process too. It's just like, all right, when I hit record for real on this, if it's something I care about, I've practiced it so much that it's going to be good. Like it's, it's going to be fine. And yeah, I might do like two or three takes just so I have stuff to cut between, but I know what I want out of this. now. Music, music that I've made for myself personally, like albums and EPs and stuff like that, that's more complicated. And I have developed a bit of a rule where if I can step away from being able to drive, basically like, you know, when you're when you're making music in a computer, you're sitting in front of a screen with a digital audio workstation in front of you. And you're staring at the like the timeline going by and the interface and all that. And you have your mouse in one hand and your keyboard here. You can hit stop at any time. You can move something around. I've made myself not be able to do that. Maybe I'll go stand over there or something. And I, uh, I listen to it. And if something bothers me three times, I change it. So if I've heard it three times and it bugs me, I change it. If I have now gone through and nothing bugs me three times, it's done. There's nothing more that I can do. So you have to sort of step out of the role of the creator and put on a different hat, sort of like a creative producer hat and be like, okay, let me try to put myself as much as I possibly can in the shoes of somebody who would be listening to this as opposed to me, the creator, you know, um, that that's really the only way that I can, uh, move past the, what I think what you're describing the sort of like gridlock of revisions and stuff like that. I think you've articulated something I've had in my head for a really long time, but never knew how to express where you're working on something and then you export it. And as soon as you watch or listen to the export, you instantly see all the errors. You in And they were right there the whole time. It's so weird. It's so fucking weird. <laughs> I don't know what that is. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You're like, wow. Uh, yeah, that was that was totally there. What the hell? <laughs> I think I think there's a really interesting thing that happens when we're dealing with interfaces, you know, 
whether it's like After Effects or Premiere or Ableton, because like you'll get the export and then you'll listen to it and be like, what the, wait, what, what, what is that? And you'll go back and think that was an error. And no, no, that's how it's been like the last 20 times you listen to it. This is the reason that I step away from the interface when I'm trying to get to that point is because there is a weird thing that will happen between being able to control and drive at the interface and staring at it and watching these events visually happen when they're supposed to be sonic events. Not a single person is going to listen to my album staring at the thing going by that I'm looking at. I need to separate myself from that. And the moment that I do that, the moment I close my eyes and get the interface out of my face, things change completely. It's it's wild. It just like I suggest anyone who makes music to do that, like lay on your floor with your headphones while the, you play the song or something. I don't know. Like it helps me quite a bit. That's an extremely good golden nugget because I'm going to start doing that. That's ex- very, very good advice <laughs> to start avoiding that export syndrome that I've dealt with every single day of my life. So hooray, a, a good way around export that. Syndrome. Export yeah, syndrome. Yeah, like that. Very good. Uh, <laughs> so uh, a couple questions to wrap up here. There's a question I ask everybody at the end, uh, near the end of these interviews is when you're first starting out in your career and you can make starting out any point in your life. It could be when you picked up the flute, when you started doing engineering, when you did video editing, wherever that starting point was. How did you kind of define success in your head? And how has that changed? And what does that kind of mean to you now? Well, it's a moving goalpost. I personally could not have conceived of the goalposts that I have for myself now when I was starting out playing the flute. And if I had continued on the line of playing the flute, my goalposts now would be completely different. I would be trying to learn parts for the ensemble that I was in. Hopefully I would have gotten a chair somewhere. <laughs> Honestly, like that that whole world is highly competitive and I would have had like a whole nother realm of anxieties. And that's the reason I'm not doing it because I could I could recognize that happening. So when I first started making music, success to me was having successfully um, sort of executed on the idea that I had set out to try to do with the piece that I was working on because I really didn't know what I was doing. I was too new at understanding genre. I was too new at understanding mixing. I was too new at understanding sound design. I just had so much more to learn. And so I would I would try and what I got out of it would always be, you know, some weird almost there kind of thing. But if there was something in there that I was proud of, I was happy. Like I had met my goal. Now like not to sound really weird but my goalpost now is just to see like what it's like to get old in a in a creative environment like i don't know i have no idea what's going to happen like i just want to get rid of like the fear that like this job is going to disappear and and i'm going to be like 60 and trying to make youtube videos still i don't know like the goalposts are so far out at this point that they're almost not even there on the other side of that though it's like i want every day to feel like I accomplished something. I want there to be something that I did that was either positive for my health, my family, my, you know, art, something. It doesn't have to be a big thing, just just one thing. And that's that's sort of my daily goalposts. I just want to have that feeling of having done something that matters or maybe set me up for the next day to uh, do something even bigger. What a beautiful, amazing, wholesome note to start wrapping up on. So as the last question that I ask everybody is, where can people find you? Plug whatever you want. Oh, cool. It's like the end of Hot Ones, but we didn't eat any wings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am on YouTube as Red Beans Recording. I'm on Twitter as uh, JJBBLLKK. 
And I have a website where you can find all of my links to like music and stuff like that. Maybe this is the easiest one for everybody. It's uh, rmr.media. That's where I am right now. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is awesome. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game, music, and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.